start us out. All right, this is uh, Charles Taylor, discussion number three, where we finish up this, this text, and we have uh, four suspects back here, uh, Dave, Brian, Tay, and John, and we are going to go through this book today and uh, hopefully put a bow on it, finish her up. We were, start, we're talking just a second ago about how the text toward the end feels a little repetitive. Brian, you want to make a couple comments? Like, just kind of speak a bit about that at the end. Yeah, it's, but that was like, kind of interesting. He was not only repeating himself, but it seemed to me like he was repeating himself in a way that felt like the text was was dictated, as if he was speaking and he had somebody yeah. writing. Every once in a while, toward the end, you'll see a part where he'll say something like. Um, uh, but that we need to go into more depth here, or there could be another book here or something. It seems like it's, he's, he's kind of tossing off comments, it seems, toward the end. Every time he said that, I really wish that I could be the one to write that book, but I don't think that I am, sadly. That's part of the frustration with me with this book. I feel like sometimes I was really getting it, and other times I was like, oh, I feel like he's calling me out right now, and I don't, I don't know what to say. I want to write that other book for him, but I don't think I have it. I definitely feel like this book is, uh, you know, it, it will, it probably already has and will continue to open up a lot of possibilities for, for people to explore things further. Yeah. Right. It's given me all kinds of ideas about how to, how to frame my, my book and, oh, yeah. and uh, get things started with it. But, uh, well, people are already doing PhDs on this guy. Yeah. I heard. Totally. There's a guy at my old school, I worked at a, at a, uh, Episcopal School, Episcopal High School, Samuel Capistrano called St. Margaret's, and there was a guy, Michael Heath, I think he's a headmaster somewhere now at a secondary ed school, but he had a PhD on Charles Taylor's works, um, and I just had recalled that, we'd had a couple conversations years ago, this is like in the late 90s, um, and uh, so obviously Charles Taylor's been, had made, made a splash for quite a while, I guess, had been a pretty significant figure for quite a while now. Yeah, mm -hmm. since his early work on Hegel. Okay. And then um, the sources of the self, but then also it's politics of recognition, it's work on multiculturalism. I mean, so it just really spans all, all different, different fields. And I know that at certain at Catholic universities, he's very okay. popular. He's very, okay. uh, a Catholic modernity, yeah. uh, things like that. He's very, very, uh, very much plugged into the kind of like Jesuit intellectual Catholic works, things like that. How would you how would you briefly describe him uh, to to someone as as you're walking around the grocery store with your Charles Taylor book under your arm and as you're at the beach reading your Charles Taylor people have asked you I'm sure what's that you reading the Bible Dave that's what my kid says all the time he's like Dad why are you reading the Bible book <laughs> so how do you describe like what 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 is the proper way to to introduce who Taylor is. Maybe we can start there and then jump into imminent frame. How do you describe who this author is uh, from what we've read here and so forth? It's, I'd say he's an archetypal product of a liberal arts education. Like if you were to say, what is the single, how, what's a product of someone that's come out of what we do? I mean, he's well-read, he has multi-languages, he's not, he's kind of interdisciplinary, he's not just hunkering down in philosophy, he's in literature, he's you know, so he's a, um, a true liberal arts renaissance man, I think. You know, like, I think he's well-read. He's, he's generous. It's, sometimes he's dismissive. 
like he calls postmodernism a fad or you know like stuff like that sometimes I think is interesting um, but but I mean like an intellect that uh, spans lots of different um, realms and areas and is kind of the ideal what you want a student you know obviously we're not going to produce students that all write like this but like someone that is just read well and not just read well but maintained well like his references to Flannery O'Connor, different, all different poets. Totally. I, I, I'm, I'm like just kind of floored by the way that yeah. he can take all of these different readings over the course of his life and kind of, you know, uh, weave them together into this tapestry that's um, is insightful in different ways. He's an amalgamator. How would you say it? Amalgamator? Amalgamator. Like an amalgamation. Yeah, yeah, like he, like he, he's a, um, uh, he does, all, he takes all these different threads yeah. in, in yeah. interesting ways, and and, and I, I find that, um, like a lot of times, philosophers just kind of get down in their area and, and discipline and just kind of, but he's not that way. No. He's not a, he's not a territorial. Uh, so, anyways, that's my take. Yeah, he's, um, he's a very synthetic thinker in the sense that he, he takes all these different strands and kind of weaves them together. Um, and I think he's interdisciplinary in a really good way because he's, he, you know, he'll talk about um, Durkheim or we'll talk about Nietzsche uh, or we'll talk about the founders and start talking about politics and things. But then there are so many places in the text where then he'll say, you know, this either needs more research but this is slightly outside my area. So. He is both synthetic, but then he's also aware of where uh, being interdisciplinary can have its drawbacks as well. And he's humble in certain areas, um, and I think he's uh, he's a kind of an ideal to, to approximate. I think for for people who are in the liberal arts. I mean, obviously, we're not going to produce a bunch of Charles Taylors, um, if only. But it's the ideal. But like that's where <laughs> yes. you would want to you would want to go. You would want to for somebody to know something about the Axial Age, um, something about um, pre-Reformation Europe, something about the Reformation. So, like, you know, you would want people to be able to kind of track this, this chronology of ideas and events um, and have some intelligent things to say about like the underlying assumptions or values of those, of those times. And that's what he does really well. What would you say to that, Tay? Yeah. Um, I, I absolutely agree with everything you guys are saying. I think if I were to characterize him, I one I think another way to be able to do it is to place him in a very specific tradition and style of philosophy. Hegel, mm -hmm. Heidegger, Gadamer. I, I see him very much in you know participating, contributing to you know uh, what 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 might be called philosophical hermeneutics, right? And uh, I think what he's doing is really trying to help us reinterpret the texts, right? Mm -hmm. And so absolutely he's participating in all these different disciplines, but he's showing us that, that, that how we've interpreted history and culture and society and texts, um, they're not hardened, they can be reinterpreted. And that's the part that for me is uh, very interesting, when all of a sudden he realizes 
that he wants to complicate this binary between belief and unbelief yes. and then split unbelief into right uh, ex- exclusive humanists and then the anti-humanist right postmodern yeah. philosophers and all of a sudden now you have a much more complicated dialectic com- you know that appears then all of a sudden it's not just right religion versus unbelief yeah. right because that's the way it's been framed for us and it seems like religion keeps losing when we think of it that way. But once you split unbelief into those two categories and realize that those two are at odds with each other in very significant ways, all of a sudden you have a much more complicated... So in other words, he's, um, I feel like he's doubling down on the very uh, uh, problems that have arose as a result of the secular age. Right? And this is where he is so different from Milbank or some of the other figures that I've read that has seen, and he keeps talking about how some people want to go back, some people, you know, point back, and this yes. is what Christian fundamentalists do in the U.S., or, uh, you know, other figures do in the medieval period to recover some Thomistic vision, right, so on and so forth. He's like, I'm not sure if that's what I want. And yeah. at certain parts, he, he really clearly says, I don't want to go back, mm-hmm. right? I think right. there's some positives to how we've ended up here. And so I feel like he kind of almost doubled down on that rhetoric to complicate things, and also he puts not just unbelief at risk, he puts every position at risk, right? That's what he calls cross-pressures. Yeah. Right. Including so, his own. I mean, like, that's he, right. including his own. he puts his cards on the table, but, that's right. but he's, he, he's intellectually honest in that he says, I could be wrong. Yeah. Like, even in my, I'll, I'm a Catholic, yeah. but my position could be wrong in this. And yeah. that's what I really enjoy about him, is he's not an absolutist. Yeah, and he doesn't, you know, he even brings into question the notion of codes or trying to find universals. I, I, yeah, I think yes. that's intellectually honest. It would be very interesting to see where where people would place Charles Taylor within the Catholic tradition. You know what I mean? Like, like which figures they would connect him to? Yeah, and, or like, would they place him on the more liberal wing oh. or conservative? What? Like, what? Like, you know? Like, yeah. Because, you know, Catholicism, I mean, that's one of the, the incredible possibilities, right, of Catholicism, right? That, that not everybody has to hold to a certain uniform right. Right. system, even though there is the, the official teachings, right? But that there's so many different possibilities even within that. Yeah, I mean, from what I understand, he's definitely aligned with the Jesuits and... Um, the, the kind of intellectual wings yeah. um, of, the, of the Catholic Church. But not like a Benedict. No, no, not like, yeah, Benedict, I, I would think someone like, um, like Pope Benedict, for instance, yeah. was somebody who was conce- seen as an intellectual, but was going more toward strict doctrine. Yes. Whereas Taylor would not be, yeah, would no. not, that's not his thing. No. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there, he's, he, he wants to, he thinks, you know, there's certain room for violence, right? right. Yeah. Sense, yeah. you know? Yeah. And yeah. it's yeah. just kind of like, you know, we're so like, it, it, yeah, I mean, he doesn't use this term, but in the American context, like, we don't have to be so puritanical about this because that's precisely what what forces religion out. Right. Mm-hmm. It forces out the transcendent more toward the imminent, right? That's the whole right. individualistic, the whole right. yeah. separation. And he comes out with his romance with Iliad, right? He says like, with oh yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. right. Yeah. So he says, I mean, here's a Jesuit that left mm-hmm. the tradition, and he says, this is a guy most kind of aligned, I mean, he goes yeah. out of line, right. sort of the end there of, um, 
speaking to him. So I, I, I would say he'd be more like if he were to place me, he'd probably be on more of the liberal side of the Catholic spectrum. Yeah, because the Catholic figures he draws on at the end in, in that last chapter on conversions, yeah, sure. they're uh, not, you know, canonical figures, yeah, right? Yeah. He starts with, you know, um, start with that. Um, he's also got club powerful and and he's into Francis too. He's into this, to, uh, Saint Francis, not Pope Francis. Absolutely. He really yeah. likes yeah. Saint Francis a yeah. lot. Yeah. Coming through me for a loop at the end there. <laughs> talking about Francis. Yeah, no, he's interesting. Yeah. yeah. And he, he was at UC Irvine not too long ago. And he just, was? Yeah. And um, his niece teaches in the political science department there or something like that. Oh, so wow. She, she brought, you know, he was on family business. She got <laughs> to come out and give a talk. Oh, and and I, I, don't, I don't know how prepared he was because he just kind of came out and just started talking, you know. And, <laughs> and he just seemed like such a, um, such a uh, low-key, well, what do I want to say? You know, um, yeah, down-to-earth guy. You know what I mean? Interesting. And so I can definitely see that kind of Franciscan just right. like feel a little bit, right? right? And uh, very humble too. Yeah. Yeah. People have called him what, what we talked about before—a historian of thought. Yeah. Is that kind of the idea? Yeah. This this historian of ideas, but he keeps pushing back on that a little. Bit. Oh, he does. Yeah. It, it feel this feels to me like a history of ideas book. Yeah. In an environment written by an author who realizes is that the philosophical environment of that kind of book is very hostile. <laughs> and like people are, philosophy is very antagonistic now to philosophy of ideas yes. kinds of books. And yeah. he's trying to show the value and continuing to think about how ideas frame our unconscious assumptions. Yes. Whereas I think yes. a lot of other philosophers, more famous philosophers now would have a pretty hard materialist bent. And they would look at this as, um, not even idealism, like bad idealism. <laughs> you know, like they would think this is this is like bad Hegel for <laughs> for some contemporary philosophers. Um, but he's trying to make the argument that we still need to see how ideas frame our deepest assumptions. Yeah. And yet, at the same time, it is yeah. not that kind of idealism where it's pure ideas, right? Mm -hmm. Pure doctrine, pure philosophy, right? And uh, because he he does have a chapter in Sources of the Self, an entire chapter he devotes to that issue, mm. to responding to people who reduce him to historian yeah. oh, really? ideas. Okay. And I think early on he makes, he repeats that point here as well, and he points to that chapter. And he says, it's gotta be something a little bit more complicated. It's, it's, and he's definitely on the side of ideas, right? He's not mm. a materialist thinker, but he says we have to see the ways in which ideas shape society and society shapes, it goes both ways, mm -hmm. right? So he does play that middle ground, and I think this is where this epilogue is very interesting. Uh, it, you know, he talks about the many stories, but mm -hmm. actually yeah. he's only talking about trying to situate his story, what he calls RMN, Reform Master Narrative, in relation to intellectual deviation, the ID story. Yeah. And I think that group, which includes Milbank, which is one? ID. ID. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's Milbank is the and the radical orthodoxy camp yeah. is the big I think uh, right. figures here. They're the ones who are much more about the history of ideas purely. Okay. Mm -hmm. Right, because they're saying that we've arrived at secularism because of these deviations, intellectual deviations from orthodox theological concepts. Yeah. 
And what Taylor is saying is, yeah, among a certain group of elites, that may be true. But we need to get at a much more broader history, right, of how ideas have have shaped and changed the masses, right? Because it's not convincing to say that elites changed their thoughts and all of a sudden everything changed in society. So I I think that's what these letters here on on 774, 775. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there there was a direct... On 773, where he starts talking about um, the heart of the intellectual deviation theory um, is encapsulated, I think, in um, Richard Weaver's mid-century book, uh, Ideas of Consequences. Mm. This dovetails a little bit with my Mm. dissertation. Um, Richard Weaver? Weaver. Weaver. And he's... um, he was very influential to uh, William F. Buckley in the conservative movement in mid-century. Um, but the argument there is that um, uh, nominalism in the uh, was it, 13th century, um, which is to say names, we, we kind of put more or less arbitrary names onto things in reality, and it's um, a deviation away from a kind of theological realism, that like we can look at a plant and we can find out from the plant um, a deep, necessary metaphysical root to it. And, then, and everything has that. And so Weaver says that um, once we get to nominalism, once names become arbitrary, then that sets, we're all, it's like the, the, that sets the path. The, the rail car is on the track and we're never getting off. And then that is the like one major catalyst for secularization and this kind of de- uh, declension narrative. And someone like Taylor's like, that's just, that's a super simplistic kind of history of ideas, yeah. history of ideas stuff. And he, he makes a kind of a brief reference to that. Um, and that's what he wants to, what he wants to compli- uh, complicate. And yet at the same time, he keeps aligning himself with these other narratives, yeah. which is, so for me, it's yeah. really interesting, his strategy here. There are, in my mind, significant differences between Milbank's approach to secularism and Taylor's, and yet at the same time, I mean, this, I, this is where I keep thinking about it. it has to be, I mean, he's thinking about, he's thinking about all this at such a high level. He realizes even if he's got disagreements with some of these other narratives, in the end, they're all on the same side, right? They're on the side of trying to open up the possibility of what he calls the epiphatic mm-hmm. again and again and mm-hmm. again, and 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 so and so it, it, it reminds me of you know like you know when when a bunch of Calvinists or I'm sure maybe in the Lutheran tradition it's the same thing you know you get them all in a room they're all arguing with each other right about the fine points of mm-hmm. you know Calvinism and, and it seems like they all hate each other right <laughs> where, where, whereas uh, uh, whereas Taylor wants to say don't forget though despite your disagreements there is another side, right? There are at least two other sides, or maybe even three, he says, or if you count, like, a certain fun, if you split Christian religion into a more fundamentalist camp versus mm-hmm. the one that he's advocating, you know, so. Well, he even says four sides, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and even then he's like, there could be more, yes. but I only have time yeah. to cover these. Right. He keeps saying it. Right now, you know? mm-hmm. So that, that's the intellectual, um, Honesty, I think that he has is he's that. not as, as smart as he is and as well read as he is. He's not a um, he's not lording it over and saying I, I you know I, I'm writing the tone mm-hmm. that's gonna 
you know, mark my name in the, the history of ideas. Kind well, of if anything, I feel like the whole tone of it is, I mean, I love the, the Desdemona analogy um, where he talks about the need that we have for alternative modes of access, right? And, and there's always these alternative modes, and I feel like he almost undermines his own work in a very positive way by saying, there are so many ways to look at this. And I feel like that's his warning against codes, right. right? His warning against, I mean, even at the end, he's really kind of, there's a lot of warnings at the end against getting stuck in one viewpoint, one way of seeing things. This is the greatest enemy. As soon as we kind of lose that humility, as soon as we lose that sense of the multiplicity, uh, uh, com the complex landscape, we, we've really done ourselves in, right? Which I love. I mean, that to me is, mm -hmm. like you said, right. that to me is the honesty that, that really continues to come at me in this book that I love. It really keeps drawing me in. He has that section where he camps on contingency and goes yeah. back to Aristotle and says, you know, contingency really, most of these people aren't up to the task of taking into account contingency and he seems to want to to do that, to say, you know, the, the minute that you set a code and, and think that it accounts for everything, it doesn't take into account the contingent. Like, the only rule seems to be contingency in some yeah. ways. You know, we went around a little bit trying to figure out how to characterize Taylor. Yeah. Um, let me ask that same question about this text, right? Um, what are some of the potential center or central questions or concerns, right, that you would say is, if I had to choose, right, this is the key concern of this book, what would some of those be? Um, you know, for me, and it may be my bias because I came in kind of saying what my interest sure. is, but I found the, the, the problem of representation and how um, meaning gets represented seems to be a central issue. And he comes to it through poetry, he comes to it through art, he comes to through it through novels. But the ways in which one represents epiphonic experience seems to be, at least for me, that's what I'm drawn to, like a central question, because the slippery nature of phenomena and the subjectivity of phenomena is so hard to um, represent that, um, that that's kind of the problem. And, and, and the, what, he, what he calls fragilization, right? Mm -hmm. like, and, and so because we lack the means of access to uh, articulate meaning in a kind of consistent way. And, and he, so there's, there's, there's almost like facets of it, and he, talk, he uses the language of facets, but because we, we lack a, um, a universal language to represent epiphonic experience, that that's part of the problem. That science is so good at doing this, but religion is not in some ways, right? It has grand narratives, but the grand narratives um, are so open to critique that, that a consistent representational language is, um, it seems to be what's needed. He says that on 712, 732, like there's all these places where I'm just like keyed off to say, you know, he, 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 he's interested in that and he finds moments of it, but um, that to me is like one of the, a, a, a theme of this. I feel like, um, I like that. What, what, you're, what you're saying there about science is that, um, it goes into his idea of exclusive humanism, where it's very hard for us to put together a list of our highest goods, but it's very easy for us to put the, like, a list of our 
uh, like the, the, the worst evils. And so what science does is it helps us say, well, let's not starve. <laughs> um, let's not have total war. Like yeah. there, there, there are ways of thinking in an exclusive humanist frame. Like what is good for humanity? Yeah. Well, it's kind of hard to say what the highest good is for us, but we can talk about what the worst is and we can stay away from that. Yeah. And so science and technology is, is very, um, uh, it's very persuasive when you do that. But then religion is so much about let's try to move toward our highest goods. And that's, right. that's so, really hard. That's, right. And then and that's where there's a lot of disagreement. Is that because of the ex, idea of excarnation? Is that your thought there? It, it could be, yeah. Because it takes yeah. it just to the... Because religion just ignores the whole imminence, the whole idea of imminence and physicality and material. It doesn't take into it, and that's where it kind of goes up on sexuality as well. Is that kind of where you're thinking? About? I don't think it, it ignores it, but it tries to um, include it in a, in a larger, um, uh, I was going to say narrative, but like a kind of a larger vision. And that vision has to go beyond mm. just exclusive humanism. There has to be something yeah. better than just uh, what is uh, what is pleasurable or good for the human. Right. And that's, that's such a difficult conversation. Um, uh, but I think the book as a whole is about, um, on the one hand, why is it so hard to believe today? This is like in the year 2000, that's that question. Mm -hmm. Why is it so hard to believe um, for so many people? And then on the other hand, why are there are still all these boards of belief, he calls them, which just seem to not go away. So like, what is this thing? Um, and then I feel like in the second half of the book, when he talked about cross pressures, um, the one chapter 16 I was really interested in, that starts on uh, page 594. Um, I wrote a little note to myself that cross pressures to me uh, feels like uh, Hawthorne's famous comment to Mel about Melville that Melville is uneasy in his belief and uneasy in his unbelief, and that's that's the cross the cultural social cross pressures we feel today. So many people are not totally confident in their belief, but they're not totally confident in their unbelief, and so they're caught in these cr cross pressures. And it seems like um, Taylor wants to uh, to kind of explicate uh, what those what those cross pressures are. Because somebody, I think like Milbank would say something like, why is it so hard to believe? Um, well, there, there are several reasons, but at the end of the day, you just need to believe. And, and uh, someone like Taylor says, yeah, of course it's hard to believe because we have, <laughs> you have all these unconscious frameworks um, that are a product of the secular age. We need to investigate those and complicate those. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's a different kind of response where I think he thinks some of the more hardline and then even further fundamentalist kind of religious figures, they're accepting all of the terms and assumptions of the secular age without, without complicating them. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in uh, trying, and I do think those, those two questions are absolutely central to, yeah. to Taylor, right? The issue of language, um, and I think that's where the Hopkins uh, section at the end is just, I think, so, so important. Yeah. And that's where I really see him closely aligned with Gadamer, where he's trying to get at something not scientific, objective language, but he doesn't want to ca categorize religion as purely subjective language either, right? He wants to get at a truth that emerges in and through the interpretive process. 
and, and so poetic language becomes key for him. And, and this question of belief, how do we get here, right? Why are we so cross-pressured? I think absolutely is a historic. What I want to know is why, does, why do these questions matter, right? And for me, a, a crucial moment appeared in 639. And um, it's something he calls maximal demand. At the very bottom of 639, he says, we may speak of dilemmas, of tensions, or even of attempts to square the circle. Whatever we call it, and here for me, I feel like this, this for me is the central question I feel like I, I, I'm drawn to in this book. The basic form seems to be this how to define our highest spiritual or moral aspirations for human beings while showing a path to the transformation involved which doesn't crush, mutilate, or deny what is essential to our humanity. Let's call this the maximal plan. And I feel like the reason why I'm drawn to this question here is because, well, what does it matter, right? If we're all cross-pressured, right? I mean, one way, one response we could imagine is kind of what a lot of our students do, right? So let everybody believe what they want to believe and just leave them alone, right? And I think Taylor says, wants to say that, mm, no, there are actual real social political consequences to what we believe, right? Um, it's not just that, yes, nobody can be certain, so let everybody believe what they believe and, you know, in the end, you know, whether there's a God or not, it'll sort itself out and then, right? And so it's not the Pascalian wager here, right? Mm -hmm. If you don't believe, right, you are in danger of certain forms of mutilation, right? That's, that's a key point, yeah. yeah. And, and, and I, I want to try to, I want to come back to ask what, what does that mean and what does that look like a little bit? But on the other hand, if you don't believe correctly, you are also in danger of mutilation, right? <laughs> it is. Now, he thinks that there, there's only one way out of mutilation, and that is what he considers a proper view of Christianity. And this is the part for me when I finished the Sources of the Self, it ended with this claim that Christianity is the only way to avoid mutilation, and it just like hung there, and it's like, I can't believe he ended the book this way. <laughs> and I feel like this whole section, this last part, is an attempt to try to take that up in yes. a little more detail. Okay? Yes. So what is this mutilation that he's talking about, right? Because this for me is what is at stake in whether we believe or not believe, whether our language is scientific, naturalistic, poetic, religious, right? Um, it actually will affect real people, real societies, real history yeah. in a very real way. Right? So what is that mutilation? What would you guys take away from that? I th um, on 622, yeah. uh, I, I always like when, when Taylor talks about Dostoevsky. Uh, yeah. yes. He does this more in Sources of the yes. Self. Okay. Uh, and so he says at the bottom of 622, the uh, third sentence in the final paragraph, it says, evil, the turning away from the good, also generates pathology and the sense of blind, compulsive seeking of lesser goods 
even evils. So the spiritual or ethical perspective allows for, even requires, the diagnosis of pathologies, as Dostoevsky has shown. And so like, turn the, turning away from the good, whether uh, in like the Brothers Karamazov or in the Possessed, which is a more, um, a more political text, um, causes you to get caught in what are essentially cycles of addiction. And you think that it's giving you pleasure, you think it's giving you a good when it's actually uh, kind of immiserating you. Um, and this could be, um, it could be sex, it could be, it could be kind of like alcohol or drugs. Um, it could be violence, like the, the revolutionaries and the possessed are kind of... Hi, I'm interrupting. This is Nathan Meyer. Hi. He's the new ESS professor. Yes, hi. That is John Norton. John. Hey, Oh, gosh. <laughs> Names are awful, and they're going to go. And this is Schultz. Dave. Dave Schultz. He is in communications. 